what Wernick said, which is we were just trying to make sure she understood the context, to we just want to make sure you understand the context, you know, like <laughs> kind of. I'll note that you were pointing your fingers like guns at me when you said that, which wasn't as intimidating as I think you think that it was. That's very unkind. I'm very intimidating. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You got to acquit. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're going to get. Oh, oh. I'll never admit. Oh, oh. I never took a hit. Oh, oh. The charges won't stick because Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday, catch me if you can. Wednesday, night. Welcome to the docket. Episode 89. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. Hey, Emily Tammon. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It was my birthday yesterday, so I'm feeling very loved. Did you get lots of presents? I mean, I was showered with love. I don't need material things to either be happy or to mark the passage of another year. Thank you for asking. That's why I didn't get you anything. (laughs) Everything in its good time. We've been sort of busy the last little while. We've been a little busy indeed, as we often are, but probably a bit more so more recently. This is the second week in a row where we've had two podcasts in one week. Just saying. We are prolific podcasters now. As promised. And uh, I had a trial this week and the normal court stuff and also there was something going on in, in like the House of Commons Justice Committee. Like <laughs> Wait, there's what? evidence there too. I, I think I heard something in passing. So I mean if you're listening to this podcast I assume that you're familiar with the SNC, Lavalin uh, scandal, what's been going on, the history, and where we are so far. And if you're not, you can go back and listen to the last two podcasts. Yes, we're, I mean, it's just, there's been so much happening that there's actually enough new material for a new podcast every week. And I strongly suspect that after this week, we'll be recording another podcast on the same topic. Yeah, so we recorded last week on the uh, sort of the day that um, Jerry Butts uh, submitted his resignation and quietly bowed out of public life, never to be heard from again. Oh, wait, he wants to come and testify at the Justice Committee now because in the last week we've also had Jody Wilson-Raybould deliver her testimony uh, in front of the Justice Committee, a day coincidentally that we had a babysitter lined up. Yes, we did. It's been quite a time. Yeah, it was. So I was sort of anticipating that she would testify on Tuesday, which worked out well because I set all my meetings all day on (laughs) Wednesday. And then her evidence got pushed back to Wednesday, which left us scrambling. But we were both able to watch uh, most of her evidence and, and of course, read the transcripts since then. Of course. Like all normal people, we read the transcripts. I read the transcripts of everything that's said at the Justice Committee. So That's what we do. Why wouldn't you do that? No, and I also had a meeting that I had to be at at 5.30, so I was like frantically trying to transition from my laptop to my headphones to the car to, you know, to miss as little as possible. And uh, yes, uh, I think, you know, it's funny because when um, in anticipating her evidence, I think we kind of felt like when we talked last time that Uh, I didn't really feel like she was going to add much because I actually felt that the witnesses that preceded her had kind of done the damage already in terms of what they had set out to me pretty much made the case for having crossed the line. So um, I was pretty shocked, to be honest. Now, before we sort of get into our thoughts on her evidence, um, 
perhaps we should um, begin this podcast as we begin so many of our podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Imam Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance, both, both practical and procedural, for defense counsel and crown counsel. And it's anchored, of course, by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. Thank you, Imond. Thank you. Um, so what I would like to do in an ideal world is to clip a bunch of quotes from Wilson Raybould's evidence and like play those clips and clip other people talking about things and do all that, but we don't have time to do that. There's no time for that. This has got to be a yet another quick and dirty uh, hot take podcast. Yeah, it's going up real quick because I start a week-long trial uh, next week and I don't have time to deal with this. And I have no idea how to edit the podcast. Sorry, friends, but I am not the technical guru of this operation. No, that would not go well. Um, no, but I think, I mean, I think we can, you know, talk a little bit about what we heard from the former attorney general. And then what we thought we would do is kind of look at some of the analysis that's been out there in the public domain. Uh, in particular, some of the kind of pundit slash liberal supporter talking points that have been circulating in an effort to... I think minimize the impact, the political impact of this story. And um, we wanted to try to look at those things and give a sort of objective legal um, analysis response to some of those things. So, I mean, the first thing that I noticed was how good Wilson Raybould's evidence was. And I don't mean necessarily the evidence itself, but just how it was presented, the way that it was conveyed, and the sort of measured tone of it. And I mean, courts have been pretty clear for a long time that you can't take a lot from a witness's demeanor because all witnesses present in different ways. And even an honest and truthful witness may seem nervous or may, you know, present in a way that, you know, is different from what you would expect. But just looking at her evidence versus um, the... Uh, uh, clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick's evidence, I think there are some stark contrasts, not only in content but form. She was poised. She was um, not anxious. You could obviously tell that this was um, a very, you know, sort of monumental event for her. You could hear sort of the importance in her voice. But I was expecting maybe her voice to be quivering a little bit or for her to be shaking a little bit. Like I would not, be. Like, and, and I think the most confident, secure, honest witness would be in the, in her shoes where there was so much public scrutiny of the Globe and Mail report. All eyes were on her. The anticipation in advance of her evidence was so high and expectations were so high that even if you were a truthful, forthcoming, you know, re, you know good witness, I would have... Um, certainly been very forgiving if she had been a lot more emotive but um, and that's not to say that she was flat or had like you know a flat affect or anything like that but she was just like you said really poised she was very reticent to speculate as to other people's motives she wasn't defensive because some of the liberals on the committee their tone in contrast was actually quite sharp and challenging and she just maintained her cool throughout the entire thing it must have been grueling it was hours and hours of testimony 
Yeah, and when you look at her evidence, it was very factual. And I mean, when you compare that to, to Wernick's evidence, he started, of course, with this very hyperbolic, you know, sort of non sequitur and not relevant comments about, you know, assassinations in the next election and just talking about irrelevant things. Her evidence was on point. She avoided hyperbole and she gave evidence about what she saw, what she heard, and how that made her feel. Whereas Wernick sort of made it like non or equivocal statement, not equivocal statements, right? Like he was very certain. He said, you know, at no time was there ever any inappropriate pressure on her. But of course, he wasn't at all the meetings. And so when you have a witness who veers off on tangents, talks about irrelevant things, gets into hyperbole, and makes sort of these conclusory statements that, you know, he can't possibly know. I think it sort of shows bias, and she didn't, Jody Wilson-Raybould didn't do any of that. No, and she didn't even take the bait really on the other side. Like, some of the opposition members were really fawning over her and sort of saying, you know, I believe you, and thank you for speaking your truth and all this, and which is fine. I mean, I did feel that it was sincere, but I, you know, I recall specifically Murray Rankin kind of, you know, in his opening to her, you know, saying some things like that and then asking her a question. I think it was about, you know, in light of everything that had happened, could she still have confidence in our institution? Or it's something, something like that. And she said, really, really deadpan. Like she said, thank you, you know, very much for your comments. And while I believe your question is rhetorical <laughs> like, and it was just but it's true like cause she, she didn't take the bait on the other side either um and uh I just thought I was actually really inspired by her because I think it took a lot of courage um to you know to give the evidence that she gave it's also definitely um worth observing that she indicated that she had taken copious detailed contemporaneous notes and had text messages and sort of other documentary aids to anchor her evidence and she said she had a very um vivid independent recollection as well so she's not just reading from notes this is what happened i guess according to my notes like it was the combination of the combination of her demeanor which like you said you know you can't read too much into demeanor but the combination of her demeanor her, um, you know, contemporaneous note-taking, um, you know, the, in its totality, I think the evidence was um, very credible. And had an impact because, you know, following her evidence, um, the, the script sort of flipped a little bit in terms of how this scandal is being talked about in the media. Um, you know, some pundits, I'm looking at you, Christy Blatchford, actually fell on their sword and recognized that, you know, perhaps they had got things wrong on coming uh, to conclusions so quickly after Wernick's evidence. So, I mean, I think that shows that this was really good evidence. Um, if one of my clients testified like that, I would be very happy. She fell into very few traps and she was very strong in the evidence. As we talked about before last time, and as I wrote about for Canadian Lawyer Magazine, there didn't have to be much daylight between what Wernick testified to and what she testified to, to make this a very, very bad, not good day for the government. But she came out swinging, like third paragraph of, of her statement, she says there was a, like a, a concerted and sustained um, campaign to politically interfere with the independence of, of the Attorney General of Canada. 
I think the part that's probably surprised me the most, especially given some of the Prime Minister's comments that he had made in the days before her evidence, was the extent to which she says that she was telling these people that they were interfering inappropriately with her um, independence. So, so that, you know, when the Prime Minister had initially said, if she felt that she was being inappropriately pressured, she should have told someone, she should have come to me. And so to hear her say that I looked him in the eyes and I asked him, not are you directing me, but are you attempting to interfere, to politically interfere with the independence of the Attorney General? And if so, I would advise you strongly against it. Um, you know, and, that, and not just that, that every time someone from the PMO reached out or from the finance minister's office, that she or her staff were saying, this is inappropriate and yeah. yet it continued yeah and i mean a lot of those sorts of points of contact we knew from you know the prime minister himself or or from other forms of evidence like warnick testified to that too um wilson raybould certainly gave names and gave context and gave a timeline and gave new names and, and you know the list of 12 people and you know 11 contacts or whatever that that went into to the pressure that she was under um, but I think the in terms of that substantive contact what we really got from her was that this wasn't just about you know the public interest or this wasn't just about jobs or this wasn't just about you know economic concerns but this was really about politics because multiple times she testified that you know, the Quebec election, um, that the prime minister said that he wasn't just the prime minister, but he was the, the member from Papineau, that, um, you know, members of the prime minister's office said, you know, we can have the best policies in the world, but if we don't win the election, it doesn't mean anything, or that there's an election coming in six months. And what would happen if uh, SNC moved their headquarters uh, from, you know, from Quebec to, to London? And it's that injection of sort of the political calculus or political reasons to engage with her that I think really makes this clear that it's crossed the line from and I think it crossed the line from before from uh, interference and pressure to not just pressure but clearly inappropriate pressure taking into account inappropriate factors because if unless she's lying right unless she is somehow mistaken about all of these conversations. This wasn't just about jobs and economics. It was about jobs and economics because that means votes. And it's not the jobs that are important, it's the votes that are important. And that's the part, probably the second part that most surprised me um, was how explicitly political the interference was. I mean, I think based on the early Globe and Mail reports and then, you know, Wernick's testimony, it was kind of political interference in the sense that political actors were attempting to influence the outcome. But to find out that in the course of their efforts to influence her, they were actually invoking electoral considerations, and in particular, that the clerk of the Privy Council would have done that, um, actually really surprised me because, and, and what I think is particularly significant about that is that to me, it takes out a little bit of the subjective thing. Like, so a lot of liberals are still trying to say, well, one person's pressure is another person's vigorous debate or whatever. But in this case, it's not just about the extent of the pressure. It's also about its 
explicitly political nature. And that, you know, she's not saying, I felt like this was about the election. I felt like they were putting pressure on me because of votes in Quebec. They're actually telling her, you know, there's an election in Quebec. I'm an MP from Quebec, right? Like they're, they're, they're making it that explicit that if she's telling the truth about that, to me, that removes any kind of, um, you know, subjectivity uh, from, the, from the analysis. Yeah, and I mean, if you want to say like, well, was this interference or not? I mean, if Jerry Butts did meet with her and say any solution is going to involve a little bit of interference, it sort of answers that question about whether they were trying to interfere or not. And we'll hear from him, so we'll see. I suspect he'll probably be putting forward a different version of some of those conversations. I dare them to call her a liar. I mean, not that doesn't seem to be a winning political move in terms of strategy. But, I mean, if you also want to look at some of the arguments, it's debatable whether you can look at jobs, whether you can look at economic interests when, you know, the deferred prosecution agreement in this context says you can't look at the national economic interest. Yes, part of the purpose of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement is to protect innocent employees and to protect jobs. That's in the purpose section. It's not a factor that you necessarily, it's not an enumerated factor to consider. And explicitly, you can't consider the economic interest. So even, you know, you can say, well, maybe you can consider jobs, maybe you consider the local economic interest, maybe you can consider, you know, individual pensions. I mean, I think that's getting close to the line. But when we're talking about the electoral calculus that Wilson-Raybould's evidence brought into things, then we don't even sort of need to get into this debate about whether it's a gray zone, about whether you can consider these things under the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Because one thing you can't consider in the Prosecution Agreement is, will this make it easier or harder for the government to win the next election? No, that's right. And I think also just to come back to the, you know, the jobs, jobs, jobs piece of it, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould said it's not totally inappropriate to raise, you know, assuming leaving out a, a bit of the part about the national economic interest and how, how, you know, the extent to which that can or can't be considered. But it was the repeated, the repeated um, assertion that she had to consider these jobs when she advised them, yeah, I get it. I understand the economic context. I've taken it into consideration and I've decided not to intervene in the prosecution. And then they keep coming at her and they keep bringing up the exact same facts, right? Like to me, that's also what kind of takes it from what Wernick said, which is we were just trying to make sure she understood the context to we just want to make sure you understand the context, you know, like <laughs> kind of. I'll note that you were pointing your fingers like guns at me when you said that, which wasn't as intimidating as I think you think that it was. That's very unkind. I'm very intimidating. Um, so, I mean, I think we're going to get into some more of this when we go through some talking points and, and try to, um, you know, break those down a little bit. The There's one or two other points I want to make just in general about her evidence. Um, and the first one, AJ actually brought this up on, on Discord, and it was something that I've been thinking about for a while, um, even before Jody Wilson uh, Raybould testified, because we know that she hired... Um, uh, former Supreme Court uh, Justice Cromwell, Thomas Cromwell, to represent her. We know that former Supreme Court uh, Judge Frank Iacobucci was uh, uh, advocating and, and was working for, uh, as a lawyer for SNC to represent them. And the one thing that Wilson Rebold said that sort of further added to this was that part of what 
the government said is, look, we can uh, we can get friendly people to write op-eds to sort of back you up. We can get outside legal opinions, maybe from a former Supreme Court judge to provide some cover. And it sat, it was really distasteful to me that, that the government would look to use a former Supreme Court judge to provide political cover for a political decision that they wanted to make. Um, I mean, we saw this a little bit in the Nadon case where um, Justice Binney wrote uh, an opinion for the government on the appointment of Justice Mark Nadon to the so Supreme did Court. Justice Charon, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and I don't know if that one was ever released, but Binney's was, and I found it not that satisfactory in terms of a robust opinion, but it certainly agreed with the government. And I mean, what the PMO was saying to, to Jody Wilson-Raybould wasn't that we'll get a Supreme Court judge to write an opinion and we'll see what they say. They were looking for a Supreme Court judge to give them the opinion that they wanted. A retired Supreme Court judge. Yeah. Yes. And I don't like sort of using former Supreme Court judges in that sort of political way. And I don't like it that Supreme Court judges seem to be letting themselves be used in this way to, to you know, provide sort of political cover or to write opinions. I mean, they're all smart people. Maybe you can, maybe that actually is their opinion, but it just seems a little unseemly. And I think that it, you know, maybe is a step down the road to sort of the politicization of the Supreme Court that we see in places like the United States that we don't don't like. I mean, get yeah. a conservative judge, get a liberal judge, this opinion, that opinion. Like, it just, something seems very wrong about it. No, and I mean, of course the implication was that they would go out and get a favorable uh, legal opinion. But it's also, like, she didn't need an outside legal opinion. And, like, what would a former Supreme Court, how would a former Supreme Court judge really, genuinely, be better situated than her to decide how to apply a brand new provision that she was involved in drafting, right? I mean, it, it just, like, that's what makes it so clear that it was for cover. Because, you know, they kept saying, maybe we can get, let's go get a, a third-party legal opinion. She's like, I don't need help with this decision. And, I mean, I think... It seems a little sexist to me, too. Like, maybe <laughs> we should bring in, like, some... Some big guns. Some big guns, because you don't, maybe you, maybe you just don't know enough to actually know what to do. You know, and maybe one of the barriers we're going to have to fully ever understanding what happened here is that we don't know exactly why the DPP declined to enter into discussions about remediation agreements. And that's something that Jody Wilson-Braybould very explicitly didn't get into in the course of her evidence. And I think it was right of her not to do that because SNC-Lavalin is before the courts right now. And, you know, if, for example, she were to say, um, we just decided that they're really still too corrupt. Right. Like they have not been rehabilitated in the way that they say they have. And we just didn't feel that it was appropriate because we don't think, um, you know, we don't think the the this was just about bad apples, that this really is, in fact, a rotten barrel. She can't be saying things like that when they're actually on trial for a corruption offense. And I, I she had think. all that information. She had the memo, the Section 13 memo. She had all of this information. So that was one thing that sort of concerned me in sort of a broad way. The other thing that I think is very interesting about this is what could make this scandal even worse is if there is more than just sort of the inference that she was removed from the justice portfolio and removed as attorney general because she wouldn't make this decision and because the government wanted to 
uh, insert someone who would make the decision that the prime minister's office wanted. Like that makes this even worse than it already is. And we got a bit closer. We got some more information about that. We knew from Wernick's evidence that sort of the timeline was pushed back. So there was meetings at the end of December where this was raised. And of course, she was shuffled out of cabinet right after Christmas at in the beginning of January. So the pressure is now closer to her being shuffled out. And the part of the evidence right at the end of her, of her opening statement was that the um, her deputy got, or her chief of staff received a call from the deputy minister that the new attorney general would need to be briefed on SNC because that is something that the prime minister would want to discuss with him. And that yep. is powerful circumstantial evidence that, well, I don't know, why does the prime minister want to discuss it with the new attorney general? Why does the new attorney general need to be briefed on it? Because the new attorney general is going to be asked to make a different decision. That is really powerful evidence that brings us, you know, closer to having this not just you know an apocalyptic scandal but you know an even bigger bigger scandal than that and that is pretty troubling too no and i think it troubled her as well because um really jody wilson rebuild herself seems to say that she feels that she was shuffled out over the snc um issue and she points to that as i think sort of that circumstantial evidence that you're describing is that once I heard that they were going to go after the new AG and that they weren't letting this go, um, and I think she also indicated that um, had David Lametti offered a remediation agreement or directed the DPP to do that, that she would have then immediately resigned from cabinet. This is in the discussions about the timing of her resignation, and she said, like, if he had done that, I would have resigned from cabinet immediately. But it so, wasn't much long after that she finally did. Um, a really interesting comment from Discord and something that I actually tweeted about a little while ago is that back on the Supreme Court uh, issue, um, there's more and more of a call for um, hot political issues um, or if there's any debate about political issues for there to be a reference to the Supreme Court to get the Supreme Court to give us a decision. And that's something that you and I have both commented on. And uh, my hot take, I think I posted on Twitter a little while ago, is stop doing that politicians, make a decision. Um, stand by your decision, own your decision, and stop, you know, trying to kick the, you know, the football into the Supreme Court for them to give you an answer. Because we've heard politicians time and time again, and I'm talking to you conservatives, uh, about how we have these activist judges who are telling Parliament what to do, and yet there seems to be this knee-jerk reaction to try to boot things up to the Supreme Court for a decision before you've even enacted any laws at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I completely agree with that in the sense that I think there are some issues that genuinely are sufficiently complex that it could be of like good faith assistance to have the court to weigh in on it. I mean, I do think the conservatives were the masters of enacting legislation that all of their best experts were telling them was unconstitutional, but they did it for the political optics of having done it and then blamed the court later when inevitably it was overturned, for example. I mean, that I really don't care for that at all. Um, and I, I, but I do see like a very legitimate role for a government acting in good faith to send a reference to the Supreme Court. 
I mean, I can't imagine what kind of reference they could have sent in this case. Like, Supreme no, Court, they, I mean, I mean they, I don't, they wouldn't even have jurisdiction for a reference. I don't, I don't but, think it's been suggested here. No, but, I know, but... I mean, it is part of this pattern about using the courts. Anyway, so, I mean, I, I think that there are some interesting um, tidbits to take away from um, Jody Wilson-Raybould's evidence. Um, and, I mean, certainly uh, her evidence leads to a bunch of other questions. And I mean, the real irony, I think, out of her evidence is that now Jerry Butts, who resigned saying he did nothing wrong, who the Justice Committee, I mean, and it's common knowledge that the liberals on the Justice Committee take their marching orders from uh, the prime minister's office. Uh, we did, after all, see a number of odd substitutions into the committee, a bunch of that was weird. nobodies who have no connection to justice uh, sitting in there for the liberals. Um, so, I mean, like, that's sort of weird, but we know that it's controlled by the Prime Minister's office. And the committee said the Liberals all voted against asking Jerry Butts to come testify. Now, all of a sudden, he wants to come testify, and they've invited him to testify. Yeah, but that, it's no surprise, right? I mean, when he resigned, he said, I want to be able to vigorously defend myself. He, he is... couldn't do that in the, from where his job was in the prime minister's office? That precluded him from answering questions? Well, whether it did or it didn't, I mean, it was totally obvious to everyone that we were going to hear from him at some point, either from through the committee or some other forum. Um it was actually becoming weirder and weirder not to have heard of him for as long as we did from the initial letter. Um, he was basically silent on Twitter, which is unusual for him. Uh, he didn't weigh in on the first couple of witnesses that testified before the committee. But keep in mind, like, let's not forget who this person is. This is a, you know, very um, lauded strategic brain. Um, and he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, you know, I don't think, I'm sure that letter was drafted before Jody Wilson-Raybould even testified. I mean, he wanted her to speak first, obviously, because otherwise he would have pulled strings to get himself, you know, before that committee first. Um, and again, assuming that she's telling the truth and, you know, we'll see whether our minds get changed on that after he testifies, he knew what she was going to say. Um, and he wanted to wait for her to say it. So, um... I mean, I'm actually fascinated to see what he's going to say because I don't know that much. Uh, you know, I, I haven't heard him speak that much and I have just no idea where he's going to go with this. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I also found from her evidence that he actually didn't feature quite as prominently personally as I necessarily expected given his resignation. Now, obviously he was the boss of Elder Marquez and, and Mathieu Bouchard, so you know, maybe you can attribute all their actions back to him, at least in terms of accountability and responsibility. But um, like for me, the clerk of the Privy Council also came out looking a lot worse after her evidence than he even had initially. I thought he looked worse after his evidence, but he looks even worse now. Yeah. So it, it's, I still don't fully get why Jerry Butts resigned in that respect. Like there wasn't necessarily a bombshell that made Jerry Butts the kind of totally villain in her story. And we'll talk about this maybe in a second when we get into some of these talking points. But one of the things that happens in criminal court is if you're the accused and you testify at the end of all your witnesses, so you call a bunch of your witnesses first and then you testify, your evidence is given less weight because you've sat through all of your witnesses' evidence, and you can tailor your evidence to correspond to what their evidence was after cross-examination. And so that's why typically, so our, our clients can, evidence can have the most weight possible, we call them first, and they testify 
cold, not having heard all uh, all of you know the other evidence after the Crown cross examines, um, and then we call the other witnesses. And so it's a bit rich for Butts to have sat back and listened to Wilson Raybould's evidence and then testified after that. If it was a criminal court, you know his evidence might be given a little less weight. The other thing is, I really wish that I was on that committee and had a chance to cross-examine Michael Wernick. <laughs> yeah, because he's going to come back. Because there are some good questions to ask him. And I mean, if his career is tarnished now, it may be destroyed after a good cross-examination. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's he. I'm glad that he's coming back because I do expect there will be some tough questions for him uh, coming out of Jody Wilson-Raybould's uh, testimony. As there should be. Before we move on, I should tell you that this episode is sponsored by Imam Publishing's Criminal Law Series, which recently received the Hugh Lawford Award for Excellence in Legal Publishing. Do you know why they received that award? Because they're excellent? In legal publishing. (laughs) And the Criminal Law Series is actually a great series. We've talked about a number of their books, the Impaired Driving book, the Fraud and and Corporate Crimes book, the Immigration book. Digital Evidence. All of these books are very, very good. But they're not good just because they're full of good stuff. They're good because they're easy to find the good stuff when you want to find it. I mean, they're indexed. There's a list of cases. And they're really the go-to book when you need an answer and you don't even really know what your question is. You just sort of know your topic. You can flip to the index. You can find what you're looking for really quick. And you can take them to court because sometimes you need quick answers. And not only that, you might be surprised. They're not super thick books. These are real. There's not a lot of extraneous information in these books. It's like what you need is just densely situated therein. Um, so it's not like going through a three-volume loose leaf trying to find what you want. It's kind of really just the most important things you need that can then um, assist you in kind of moving on to further legal research. Yeah, this ain't no 90-page uh, Supreme Court judgment uh, <laughs> telling you what should be plainly obvious. Um, they say what they need to say. They say it quickly because that's what you need to do when you're on your feet and you need an answer. And that's what you need to do when it's late at night and you need to find out what the answer is to the question that you don't even really know how to articulate yet. Um, The best part is our listeners get 10% off. All of the titles in the uh, the criminal law series, all you have to do is visit emon.ca slash CLS and enter code DOCKET10 for checkout. That's it. Easy as that. Peasy. So let's talk a bit about some of these... um attempts to um, mitigate the impact of Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony by misdirecting, recharacterizing, or um, attempting to set out a different narrative to the one that she so eloquently exposed before the Justice Committee. So I've listed 10 that I've heard. Um, and what I'll do is I'll go through them. I'll read them out. You can take the first crack. I'll fill it in. And then if I miss any at the end, we can come back. Because I feel like, I mean, there has been a really good job. I've, I mean, we've watched, I think, more Power in Politics and, you know, Power, Power Play. Play on CTV and listened to 
Um, I mean, the Boys in Short Pants podcast, we listened to it on the drive back with the, the kids from the cottage today. And so there's been lots of good sort of commentary and there's been lots of good pushback, but it hasn't been very consistent. I mean, I noticed that on this episode of this week's episode of The House, they had Erwin Kotler and then uh, some yeah. liberal minister after that. I can't even really remember. But then sort of no voice after sort of pushing back, no academic or opposition party or like. So, I mean, I think that we need to sort of step up and uh, fill that void. Yeah, I think we should. Okay, so point number one. Well, Emily, obviously Jody Wilson-Raybould was the source of the leak to the Globe and Mail. Uh, this is, I mean, this is all connected to efforts to discredit Jody Wilson-Raybould by impugning her integrity, basically. So, I mean, I, I assume this is one of your other talking points, but or, or, yeah, talking points, but very closely related to she's the source of the leak is um, why didn't she resign? So these are these are the kind of efforts to undermine her credibility by suggesting that she's not perfectly pure in all of this. Now, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence that she is the person who leaked the story to the Globe and Mail. It has to have been someone, admittedly, with sufficient knowledge of the situation um, to go to the Globe with that. However, like she points to, you know, 11 different people that she says applied pressure to her, right? And those people all have colleagues and, um, you know, are talking to other people. So. I actually don't think this isn't a case of like one or two people knew about this and she was one of them and so it must have been her. So first of all, as a starting point, I really don't know who leaked the story. Maybe it was someone from her office, which is, you know, if it was someone from her office, it's problematic because given her solicitor client privilege, they're kind of covered, enveloped in that privilege as well. So it would certainly be an ethical breach on someone's part. But the evidence is very thin. And even if it was her, which I don't think at this point there's really any evidence to support one way or the other. Even if it was her, it that is completely irrelevant to the question of whether the Prime Minister, the Clerk of the Privy Council, or members of the PMO acted inappropriately. It's just, it's, it's unrelated completely. Um, and so I don't see how it actually mitigates the impact of this scandal to kind of say, well, she went to the Globe. I'm glad she went to the Globe. If it was her, I'm glad she did. Because if this kind of thing is actually par for the course in our government, I'm glad it's been exposed. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a distraction. It is a point of interest. I'd like to know who leaked it. I mean, if I was on the committee and she was testifying, I probably would have asked her, do you know who leaked it? Did you leak it? I mean, I don't think it uh, adds very much. It's a small argument for small minds. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing would be, like, for example, if the rest of her evidence hadn't been super credible, like, could there be a case that would be starting to come together that, in fact, this whole thing had been contrived by her, right? Like, that she took the story to the Globe, she's made this all... I mean, th that is just not a, a, a credible um, theory, and I don't think anyone's actually framing it that way. So, no, I, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, in the, in the sort of way that you're curious about, like, gossip and other things. I am curious who it was. But to me, even if it comes out that it was Jody Wilson-Raybould, I don't think that takes away anything from the seriousness of this situation. No, especially considering that even if you leave aside her evidence, the Globe and Mail story has largely been confirmed. Well, that's so. the other thing. Okay, moving on to the related point that you brought up. Why didn't she resign? Why didn't she tell anyone about it? I'm really surprised that people are still bringing that one up for two reasons. 
Number one, like I said before, she very clearly, according to her evidence, did tell a lot of people. And this was one of the the points in the uh, in her evidence that was great when you know the conservatives asked like why didn't you you know go back and tell anyone about this and she's like I told the prime minister of Canada that it was inappropriate like she did tell everyone about it who else was she supposed to tell well and you know Michael Wernick suggested she could have gone to the ethics commissioner with it I mean essentially every person that attempted to apply pressure to her in this case. She turned around and said to them, or someone else on her behalf, like her chief of staff, said, this is inappropriate political interference. So I, like, so to me, that is asked and answered, if I could say. Um, and then on the why she didn't resign, I actually think she gave an enormously credible explanation for why she didn't resign immediately. This is something we talked about, I think, on our first podcast on this issue when the story first came out, um, where we said, you know, Again, like to me, the same as the question of whether she's the leaker to the globe, maybe she should have resigned sooner. Again, I I think she gave a credible answer, which was essentially, I kind of thought it had been put to bed, like, you know, the holidays came and and then she got shuffled and that changes things. But I think what we had sort of concluded originally, too, is like, maybe technically she should have resigned earlier, but that again is sort of peripheral to the main scandal. Yeah, she was the bulwark against this pressure. She had resisted it. Resigning could do more harm than good. Then it's continued pressure to the end of December. Then it's the Christmas holidays when you're with your family and these are big decisions. And then, as she said, you know, then she finds out all of this information that, that, you know, maybe she's being replaced because the government wants to make a new decision and stuff happens real fast after that. a related sort of point is, well, I mean, she was a really terrible minister of justice. Um, she was a terrible minister of justice, so she was probably a terrible AG. I mean, let's just deal with this right now and really quickly. We're all grown-ups, and we can hold two things in our heads at the same time. You can be a completely terrible minister of justice, and I stand by everything that I've said, that I think she wasn't a very good minister of justice. Maybe that's mitigated somewhat. Maybe she was being held back somewhat. Maybe she really wanted to deal with minimum sentences and the PMO was putting pressure on her and holding her back with respect to that too. So maybe she's not quite as terrible as she could have been. But it doesn't matter. Even if she's the worst minister of justice of all time, it seems like she was a pretty damn good AG, at least on this issue. No, that's right. And, and you know, I've had some exchanges with a couple of different people about this on Twitter that I don't think it is remotely hypocritical to, on the one hand... Um, not be a cheerleader for Jody Wilson-Raybould's record as the Minister of Justice, her legislative record, Um, but at the same time to feel that she acted with enormous integrity in this case, that she stood up to intense pressure, and that she displayed courage and conviction in her evidence before the Justice Committee. I think those two things can be true at the same time. Um, And not only that, it can also be true at the same time that the PMO acted inappropriately. So, and I've never once heard any official spokesperson for the prime minister say that she was moved out of the justice portfolio because of her performance as minister of justice. We've had a lot of slippery, slimy, unnamed sources saying that she was difficult and impugning her, like ad hominem attacks, basically. But even those have not spoken to her actual record as as minister of justice as a reason for her being shuffled. Okay, this is a recent one, and it comes from um, our new Minister of Justice and Attorney General, David Lametti, um, who, interestingly today, to global uh, news, 
wouldn't answer the question. And here's the question. Let me ask you the question and see. Pretend you're the minister of justice. Hit me with it. I'm going to ask you the question uh, that he wouldn't answer. Um, here it is, Emily. Do you think it's appropriate for the government to interfere in a criminal prosecution for political reasons? I do not think it's appropriate. He wouldn't answer that question. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, but let's go to what he did say and what he did answer. Is Lametti um, told uh, Global News that, look, Wilson Raybould might have just used the wrong words when she was outlining this sort of attempted interference. Maybe she didn't really mean interference. Maybe she didn't really mean what she said. Maybe she just used the wrong words. What word did she mean? That's the part that I don't get. If she didn't mean interference, what was she trying to convey? When Maybe she, she was just speaking off the cuff and just using words that she didn't really mean and didn't understand. Oh, God. This guy is not doing himself any favors. He's coming across looking like just the most shameless partisan. How could the Minister of Justice not agree with a simple proposition like do you agree that it's inappropriate to interfere politically that doesn't mean you can't continue to maintain your ridiculous stance that there was no political interference in this case it doesn't mean that you can't vote for the liberals in the next election or that you can't support them and you're right it doesn't mean that you can't say that look there wasn't any political interference in this case but can but yes you, of course but can't you agree with the general proposition that in general, speaking in just broad strokes, the Prime Minister's office shouldn't interfere with the independence of the Attorney General and interfere with a prosecution for electoral, elect, reasons of electoral politics. And to me, that demonstrates either a lack of understanding or a complete lack of confidence on his part. Because wouldn't you agree, like when you have a witness, when you're in a trial, like when I would prepare my witnesses, and especially as a Crown, right, I would always say to them, Listen to the question, especially on cross-examination, and just for the love of God, answer it honestly. If you agree with what's being put to you, agree. You know, if, if the lawyer says to you, would you agree X, say yes if you agree. Because what happens is when you try to figure out where they're going or what they're really trying to get at, or you never want to agree because it's the opposing side's counsel, you come across looking totally unreasonable and it hurts your credibility in the long run. And to me, that's what, like, th that answer to me is like, it's like he thinks he's about to be tricked or that he's somehow now agreeing with the, quote, other side if he agrees with an, in an incredibly fundamental principle that it's inappropriate to interfere politically in a criminal prosecution. I, I was so disappointed by that. And that sort of leads into sort of the other talking point. And I'd like to thank uh, Amanda Alvaro of Pomp and Circumstance uh, because I got most of these off of her Twitter feed. Um, <laughs> So Jody Wilson-Raybould and the Prime Minister, they can both be telling the truth. It's just how they feel that differs. Yeah, this is, this is a big one, um, which made some sense as a talking point before any of the witnesses had testified. So when we just had the Globe story and it just sort of asserted without a lot of detail that Jody Wilson-Raybould was shuffled because, you know, she wouldn't bow to the pressure or whatever. At, at that stage was what we knew at that time. There was a case to be made that, well, I guess it's possible that she felt pressure, but they didn't know that she felt pressured and it wasn't their intent to pressure anyone. And so this is all just a huge misunderstanding, right? Like that, that was a possible um, factual outcome. You know, now that we've heard from witnesses, though, her evidence, like this was my point before about it not being suggest, su super subjective. Her evidence was not 
Michael Wernick called me and it made me feel a lot of pressure. You know, his tone was really sharp and I felt really intimidated. That Her evidence was he called me and he uttered these words to me and in response I said, you're interfering. Like, so I really think like, I don't even understand how people are still putting that forward, like at all. Now, that's not to say that you, that at, that's not to say that based on all of the facts, a reasonably objective person could come to a different conclusion one way or another as to whether the pressure crossed the line, right? As to whether um, it was inappropriate or not. You know, Wernick insists it wasn't inappropriate. Jody Wilson-Raybould says it was. At the end of the day, some objective person is going to have to decide based on the facts that they essentially agree to whether that, you know, amounted to the type of pressure that is, you know, not allowed. But there's no real like question as to the facts in my mind at this point. All right. I'm going to ask myself this question. Okay. Because I've been thinking about it a lot. Jody Wilson-Raybould said herself that there was no <gasps> illegal conduct here. So annoying. Which is so ridiculous because uh, a few things. The first, the measure of appropriateness and propriety isn't necessarily criminal conduct. As I was, we were at a, a party, and I mean, one of the things that I will note is that lots of people who aren't legal and political nerds are talking about this. Oh, yeah. So it's a big deal. And the example that I gave is just because it wouldn't be criminal for me to make a pass on our neighbor sexually mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it would be appropriate <laughs> or advisable for me to do so. Like criminality, and this was the same in the Duffy case, criminality can't be the benchmark that we use for how we want politics done or how we want anything done in our society. But even if it was, um, there, that's just her opinion, man. Like there is a good case to be made that, as we said, and I think as I'm going to write this week in my column, that it's not not obstruction what <laughs> happened um i mean andrew Shearer says it could be intimidation i disagree um, one of the elements of intimidation is that it has to instill fear in a person and i don't think that's borne out by the evidence or what wilson raybould says herself but you know was the government taking steps to obstruct or manipulate what was happening in an ongoing court proceeding i mean Maybe. I don't think that, and certainly if if there's more evidence that she was moved out of the justice portfolio so they could put someone in to get the decision that they wanted, I think that that would strengthen the case for sure. So I don't think you can say that it's not obstruction of justice. Um, at the same time, it's incredibly hard to prove obstruction of justice. You have to prove that they willfully did this to obstruct justice. And I mean even if they did it for illegitimate reasons, it doesn't necessarily mean they did it for reasons of obstructing you know, a court process. So I think it'd be incredibly hard to prove, and I don't think it's probably the best way to achieve you know, a remedy or a systemic change or consequences. As we saw with Duffy, you know, criminal cases are hard. We shouldn't use the criminal courts as a tool to bring about political accountability. I think it's probably not the right way to go, but... It's not necessary. I mean, there isn't any reason. There, there isn't 
you know, there isn't not reasonable and probable <laughs> grounds to believe that, you know, something could have happened here. Well, and this is the thing is like, I don't know if I, what I, I think part of what might be happening here is that some of these people are misunderstanding what she said. Like she was talking about the criminal offense of obstruction of justice when she was saying, no, I don't think it was illegal. You know, technically, if she was inappropriately pressured, if her constitutional independence was interfered with by people, that is a form of illegality. Like it's it's unconstitutional, right? So like it's not criminal, but I don't think that you would take away from her evidence that she doesn't think anyone did anything wrong. She does. No, she says that people did That's things wrong. That's why we're here. She's saying they exerted inappropriate pressure and that is the main issue to be resolved in this controversy the question of whether it might have also constituted a crime speaking for myself i really really hope we don't go down that road i think it will be a huge distraction it will completely slow down the flow of information because if there's a criminal investigation happening then people are going to have to be really careful about you know protecting their own rights against self-incrimination if there's a criminal trial it would put on hold any other type of proceeding that could actually get us to a neutral third party adjudication or ruling on the question of whether the pressure was inappropriate. I will say this, though. Um, If there is going to be an investigation, um, the RCMP better get moving and better start interviewing witnesses because the more time that goes on, um, the, the more degraded this evidence is. And I mean, if you want Ideally, you want to preserve people's evidence and take statements before they've heard whatever else is going to say. And so the more that we do this in public, which I think is probably the best way to do it, um, the, the more problems there can be should there be any criminal charges. I think the public interest is so much greater in getting to the bottom of this and getting some transparency and political accountability than a criminal investigation for obstruction of justice. And I also want to just highlight... Michael Bryant's very strange about face on this issue. Michael Bryant, of course, being the... um, Former Ontario Attorney General and President of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, who, like, the day this scandal went public... He said, of course, it could be obstruction. This is the most clear offense ever. Everyday Canadians get convicted of obstruction of justice for much less than this. And that was with almost no information about what had happened. Then we get the information, and it's actually much more significant than many of us thought. And all of a sudden, he's like, people should be very cautious about, you know, throwing around obstruction of justice. And actually, and then he also starts kind of impugning Jody Wilson-Raybould, which was really, really strange because the consensus seemed to be that she came out looking really credible. And all of a sudden, he's kind of implying that she's done something wrong. I can't even really remember exactly what, but very weird. Um, So here's this one, Emily. Okay. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Jabs. This is about jobs. So I think we've talked already before about um, the issue of the role that the national economic interest does or doesn't play. You know, some people have pointed, as you said earlier, to the purposes section of the remediation agreement provision that does say um, that one of the purposes of the regime is to um, mitigate, you know, the negative consequences to innocent third parties like employees, pensioners, stakeholders, whatever, fine. First of all, jobs, jobs, jobs was not the refrain that the prime minister and his officials touted out at the beginning of this. At the beginning of this, they said, essentially, she's, this is a false story and it's defamatory and none of this is true. You know, and then they've given a bazillion other explanations. 
And then what was certainly borne out by Jody Wilson-Raybould's evidence was that the jobs, jobs, jobs was much more about votes, the electoral votes, votes. consequences, <laughs> votes, 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 the electoral consequences to the liberal if liberals if there were job losses. So there's that. That's one thing. I think more importantly and something that I don't think has been talked about enough in the media is that there were, if your true, genuine, good faith preoccupation was with jobs, there were other less unconstitutional things that the government could have done to save those jobs. The, you know, and again, I, I'm not necessarily in the camp that thinks that SNC-Lavalin should be saved in the circumstances because of the, you know, breadth of their malfeasance and other things. But if you were of the view that we need this com company to be sustained, one very easy thing the government could have done, which they are apparently now looking at doing... How they want to do it. ...is changing the debarment rules. So the government's own procurement, the integrity regime um, that governs uh, federal government procurement, you know, currently holds that a company that's been convicted of certain offenses, and these offenses are among the enumerated offenses, is debarred from bidding on federal contracts for a period of time. That is not even a law. That is not legislation. These are guidelines that, that uh, govern the procurement process, and they can be changed, and they can be easily changed without interfering politically in a criminal prosecution. Even if jobs, jobs, jobs is a legitimate refrain, you still have to do it the right way, and they went about it the wrong way. And you're right, there's other things that they can do. There's retraining, there's, you know, subsidies, there's things that they can do to mitigate, you know, any fallout. And we have to remember, there hasn't even been a trial yet. Maybe SNC is acquitted. Maybe this takes a long time to play out. Hey, maybe they want to nationalize SNC and buy it to save all those jobs, sort of like they bought a pipeline. I don't know. There's lots of things that they can do short of inappropriately interfering with the discretion of our independent attorney general. Well, and also, you know, they kept saying, according to Jody Wilson-Raybould's evidence, we need a solution, we need to find a solution, we need to find a solution. I didn't hear anyone proposing any other solution. <laughs> and, like, there were and, you know, for Jerry Butts to say every solution requires some interference, this is what I find so fascinating, okay? If they had been successful in convincing Jody Wilson-Raybould to intervene, she would have had to, as many people have noted, publish something in the Canada Gazette so that there would be transparency about the fact that she had done that. I'm now starting to ask myself whether their actual hope was that they would be able to do this without being transparent about it. Because, i.e., you know, when PMO officials said to her, why don't we just reach out informally to the DPP in her office, right? Maybe it stay been, the charges for delay or exactly, for some other reason. Like if Because I'm having trouble understanding why they wouldn't just go changing the integrity regime route um, like why they would have seen that as being more politically damaging than what they actually did here, right? Like just assume that they had pushed or encouraged even not unlawfully Jody Wilson-Raybould to intervene and give a deal and then it had been published in the Gazette. I feel like that would have been very heavily scrutinized. I think the public and the media would have looked at that and said, whoa, the DPP did not want to give a remediation agreement and Jody Wilson-Raybould's making them do it. So don't you sort of wonder whether they were hoping that they could find a way for the remediation agreement to be given without having to be transparent about their intervention? Maybe, or maybe they would just be content to throw, you know, yet another MP, cabinet minister under the bus. I mean, like, is it getting pretty crowded under there? Um, but maybe they would have thrown her under the bus for that decision. 
Who knows? Maybe they're not just evil and trying to interfere the PMO. Maybe they're just not smart. I mean, like, it's always a pretty bad submission to make for a judge. It's like, look, would a criminal really rob a bank without a glove and leave prints behind? It's like, no, because often people who do inappropriate things are not just doing inappropriate things, but they're also not very smart about it. Yeah, the ones that get caught. But just also one other quick thing about the jobs, 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 and I think this is also important, is that like we have seen over the course of the past year and more the lengths that SNC-Lavalin is willing to go to get its way, right? They lobbied their way into amendments to the criminal code that created this regime in the first place. They didn't get their way. You know, they were 50 times. They were in meeting with senior officials. They put ads in national newspapers. And so now they're, you know, their latest thing is, well, then we're going to move to London. Are they really going to move to London? I mean, how concrete is the evidence? Because as has been noted um, in the Globe and Mail, the SNC-Lavalin has certain loan agreements with the federal government that are subject to contractual obligations to stay in Canada for at least, I think it's the next seven years. So is it possible that this is all just part of their kind of bluff tactic and that the government has just bought it hook, line, and sinker? You know, I and I don't know. Like, I just look at it and I think... Everything that they say seems to be taken at face value. We've we've changed face value. We're gonna leave if you don't help us, face value. Like, God, do they ever have a lot of power and influence? It's really disturbing. Well, and if this is really about pensions and jobs and stuff, maybe the government wants to bring in robust protections to pensioners. So like when Sears leaves <laughs> or when GM closes or when a corporation declares bankruptcy, pensioners don't always get screwed. They could do that, but they don't care to do that uh, in other cases. So yeah. I, I don't believe them. Um, sort of on a similar vein and I'll answer this one quickly we've got a couple more to go through so let's blaze through these um, another uh, question and this is a question actually asked at the Justice Committee is isn't it true that you know a prosecutor has an ongoing duty to continually assess the public interest so I mean these like repeated sort of inquiries isn't it just all part of that ongoing duty. I mean, you can't just make a decision and then stick to it. You have to keep on looking at it. And that's simply what they were trying to do. The answer to this is easy. Yes, prosecutors do have a continuing obligation to look at reasonable prospect of conviction and the public interest of prosecution. But they only need to reevaluate those if there's new information. And there hasn't been any indication that there was any new information jobs 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 it's not like jobs 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 yeah it's not like they they said you know should you do it we should do it we think you should do it and then they go back a couple weeks later and say actually we've run the numbers and this is like the number of pensioners that might be impacted then she says no and then they come back the next week and say okay we've actually got this new information about sort of the uh, the third party economic interest that could be impacted even if you're even allowed to consider those things. Which you're not. But, but, yeah. but there's no new information being presented. So, yes, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, I guess she does, but the prosecution does, have an ongoing uh, duty to assess these things, but only to the extent that there's new information presented. And they weren't presenting the, any new information. They were just hammering on the same old information, trying to get her to change her mind. Yeah. Um, next one. The ethics commissioner is looking into these things, and we, we need to let that process play out. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that they want to rely on the ethics commissioner's investigation for two reasons. Number one, the investigation takes place in secret. So we're not going to hear the way that we would in these committee hearings or in a trial um, or in a public inquiry or something. And number two, the ethics commissioner's mandate is very narrow. And it is possible, and that the ethics commissioner has to be true to his mandate. So um, it is possible that evidence presented in secret to the ethics commissioner affirms inappropriate political interference, but that the ethics commissioner's conclusion will have to be that there was no breach of the Conflicts of Interest Act. So um, the, the scope is too narrow and the proceedings taking place in secret and also the length of time that it takes because these are not speedy investigations where I continue to be of the view that there could be a very concise, narrowly construed judicial inquiry or public inquiry of some kind that actually could do its work relatively quickly. The next one. Emily, we've only heard one side of the story. <laughs> well, so far we've heard more than one side. Well, so far we've heard Jody Wilson-Raybould's side, but we've also heard the Prime Minister, his, the many sides of his story, his, yeah. his constantly shifting and changing narrative. We've also heard Michael Warnock's evidence. We've also heard other information. And the other side has had plenty of time to present its side of the story, and if you're waiting for Justin Trudeau to testify before the Justice Committee, I'm going to wager, and I'm not a betting not man, that it's not going to happen. No, I mean, I do think we should hear the other side of the story. I mean, there are people who she attributes certain... I wish those conducts. people would call on Justin Trudeau to testify under oath at the Justice Committee then, but they don't seem to be asking for that. No, the liberals aren't, no. But I mean, yeah, no, I think, I certainly think that any fulsome inquiry would hear from many people, but I don't think at this point in time that's any reason not to take her assertions at face value, especially given how credible they were. Um, and also, like you said, how consistent they ultimately really were with Michael Wernick's testimony. It's not like they told two different stories. They, they reached two different conclusions about, um, you know, the inferences that can be drawn from those facts. And yes, you know, she adds a little color to, to some of the conversations. There's, there is one point where um, where they are completely at odds, where he claims that he didn't know that SNC-Lavalin wasn't getting a remediation but agreement until he, he read it in the, in the paper. But she said, so fine, that's one point. But in general, in terms of the nature and character of the calls, like they're kind of on the same page. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Um, and the last one that I have is what the Prime Minister said in his press conference after Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony. The voters will have a chance to decide. They will be able to cast their vote for the Liberal Party of Canada, for the middle class, and for jobs, or for the Conservatives, Andrew Scheer, and the party of Stephen Harper. Oh, God. He is so shameless. Um, let me see. Is Stephen Harper running in this election? Is Stephen Harper... No, Stephen Harper is not a candidate. I mean, I think you can say... And I mean, I just got engaged in this conversation today. I think that you can say generally that we don't want political interference into the prosecution. I think you can even say that there was political interference here and that was wrong. I think you can also say that doesn't mean that I don't need to vote for the liberals. It just means that I'll need to explain like where my line is and what I think it is. I think it is a very poor defense to say do you really want Prime Minister Andrew Scheer? Might I also offer the following observation? There are more than two parties 
in Canada. And Are you fact, saying they should vote for John the Engineer Trebel? <laughs> I'm just, I mean, in a completely disinterested way, I just want to remind Justin Trudeau uh, about the existence of the New Democratic Party of Canada. And perhaps... Are they going to say Maxime Bernier? <laughs> the People's Party is also a party. But, um, you know, you don't have to choose between bad and worse. There's another option, and it's the NDP. Thanks for listening. <laughs> well, and be principled about things. Like, yes, I know that saying that political interference in prosecutions is, is bad, and I know that that might lead you to say that this situation, the government acted inappropriately. Um, but to throw up a bogeyman that... I mean, it's just... I love it. It's like, we're in trouble. Ah, Stephen Harper. <laughs> like, come on. Dude, that we're was... smarter than that. That was so 2015. It really was. And Move I mean, on. like, sheer would be very bad. And I think the conservatives, for all the credit I'll give them during... I mean, except for Andrew Shear and his calling on Justin Trudeau to resign, which is a bit premature and a bit, you know, hyperbolic in and of itself... Um, the conservatives have conducted themselves very well, I think, in this, you know, in the committee hearings and the, the debate on the SCN issue, SNC issue. <laughs> um, but I also, just looking at justice, I'm going to say something pretty controversial. Do it. Be bold. The liberals have been worse on justice than the conservatives ever were. I mean, the conservatives, yes, we got Bill C-51, the terrorism bill, that was terrible. We got Bill uh, C-13, the cyberbullying bill that sort of rolled back some privacy protections, and that was terrible. And we got a bunch of minimum sentences. But the liberals, not only have they missed the opportunity to do what they said that they were going to do to fix all of those things, but they've introduced a lot of really problematic and I think unconstitutional legislation. Um, including proposing things like police officers shouldn't need to testify in court. They should just be able to submit affidavits. Um, like provisions that were so bad that they even had to pull out of the legislation before it's been passed. So, yeah, I think the conservatives would be, would be worse than the liberals for a number of reasons. Um, on justice, I don't know if that's necessarily true. And this isn't a binary choice. Um, exactly. You can still not be for Andrew Scheer, and you can still be against political interference with prosecutions. And if you're for political interference in prosecutions, just remember that when Andrew Scheer, I don't know, decides to, instead of pulling a prosecution against a friendly corporation that's lobbied him, maybe instigate a pros initiate a prosecution against a political rival or something, you're really defending that too. Can you imagine how much the Liberals would be losing their minds if Stephen Harper had been the Prime Minister and this had happened? Like, this is what I find... I mean, one of the things that I find so shocking is the near silence of the Liberal caucus members, in particular the lawyers in that caucus, and the minimization by people like Marco Mendocino, who was a PPSC counsel like I was. And I'll say it because you won't, because you're running against her in the election, Catherine McKenna, who has, is a lawyer who holds herself out as a very... I'm sure is a very intelligent lawyer who believes in the rule of law. Where are these voices? And without being disloyal to the government, they can raise concerns. They can say, this is this is concerning to me and I want to get to the bottom of it as well. So I think, you know, that is really problematic. Um, there's just one more point that is not on your list that I would like to just quickly raise and I know we need to wrap up. But 
is this this new narrative that's developing that's, you know what we probably should focus on more than all of this, is maybe we need to separate um, the Minister of yes. Justice and the Attorney General into two separate entities. And don't get me wrong, my dear friend Adam Dodek, the former dean, or the dean, sorry, of the University of Ottawa um, Faculty of Common Law, made that case in the Globe and Mail, and he made it very compellingly, and I don't disagree that it's something that we should look at. I just think, again, it is an attempt to obscure the fact-finding function that's trying to well, unfold right now. And I mean, how would that have helped here? Exactly. Like, if, if Jody Wilson-Raybould was just the Attorney General and not the Minister of Justice, would that have stopped um, everyone in Bill Morneau's office, his Chief of Staff and other, other employees from calling her? Would it have stopped the PMO from calling her? Would it have stopped the Clerk of the Privy Council from calling her? Would it have stopped Justin Trudeau from talking to her? No, it maybe would make it more apparent that those conversations were happening inappropriately, but it wouldn't stop the type of pressure that happened here. No, but the, the implication, they're trying to imply that basically like these people were confused and like, well, they thought they were talking to the Minister of Justice and if, if they crossed a line, like it's because they were confused. Like, no, what could the Minister of Justice do for SNC-Lavalin? Nothing. Only the Attorney General had the power to do anything. And I these don't people put were it not past, confused. I don't put it past them that they are so clueless and incompetent that they were confused, so morally righteous and self-absorbed, believing that they know what's best and that they should implement it, that they were perhaps blinded by things. Um, but I think that they can also be that and have put in a, knowingly have put inappropriate pressure on the AG to do something they wanted her to do. It would be the most them thing to do to respond to this by separating the AG from the Minister of Justice. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I think it is really something that is worth looking at. <clears throat> Other jurisdictions, you know, are, are organized in that way. And I, I don't have any, like, I'm sort of agnostic on it. I don't have a problem with it. But I, I don't think it's what we should be talking about at this very moment. And all these pundits that are trying to change the conversation into, should we have remediation agreements? Should we separate the AG? You know, should we this, should we that? It's like, first, let's find out what happened here. Because you know, you and I have talked a lot on this podcast about how one of our biggest pet peeves is these major changes that are in response to one case. Is it possible that this has been a problem in previous governments and whatever? Maybe, but we don't know yet. And to think that we would fundamentally change something like that because this one thing happened, like that's not reason enough. Like I think we should, I again, like I said, I'm not opposed to studying it, but the way they're trying to turn the conversation, number one, to obscure the debate, and number two, to somehow imply like, actually it's quite confusing and it's hard to tell what hat the person's wearing. The only thing I would say to that is, Imagine the PMO calling up the judge. And that is how you have to think about it when you think about the pressure they put on the AG. What would the public think if they were going to the judge and saying, think of the jobs, think of this, think of the Quebec election. That would be a no-brainer to most people that that would be inappropriate. And that is, the Attorney General is in a similar, um, similarly, you know, Do you remember how much role. the Liberals freaked out when Stephen Harper, like, had unkind words to say about the Chief Justice of Canada. And it was really bad. It was. Remember how much they freaked out? Yeah, this is like that. It, it is like that. And I mean, you know, maybe it would maybe they would think of the AG as being more like a judge if that was their only job. But it's not like these pressure conversations were happening around the cabinet table. So I don't know how they could have been confused. And like I said, 
you know, were people calling up the Minister of Agriculture to raise SNC and jobs? No, they needed to go to oh, the person who had the power to fix it. This is it. the other one. <laughs> Christian Freeland's thing. Ministers all get, feel pressure. all feel pressure. It's like, yeah, but she's not a normal minister. She's the Attorney General. And, like, you can put pressure on Christian Freeland to come up with, like, a, you know, a trade deal that that you want that maybe even takes into account political things like supply management. You can put pressure on the infrastructure minister to direct money to you know certain ridings or, or regions that might be good for you. Those are all bad things to do, yeah. but they're not like destroying democracy type of things to do. Um, Many of the ministers have been... Christian Friedland, Carla Qualtro, Miriam Monsaf, I heard just now on um, CTV, um, multiple ministers have been saying we all feel a lot of pressure it's a high pressure job and so and it's it's also like almost backhandedly suggesting that she couldn't handle the pressure she handled the shit out of that pressure i'm sorry she did exactly the right thing but this idea that you know we all feel pressure the attorney general is in a very shouldn't feel pressure the shaw cross doctrine says that they shouldn't feel pressure yeah that is really bothering me because that's also trying to um hope that people aren't paying enough attention or that they don't understand the issue it's kind of like preying on ignorance in a way and it i find it offensive and super super annoying but in some cases i also get the impression that they actually themselves don't fully understand yeah i wouldn't put it past them and the last one that i'll add is this sort of thing happens all the time it happened under the last government it happened under the Chrétien. it happened under everyone this is just the way things work the response to that is number one this government said it would be different. Um, and maybe that's why we're all pissed off. And number two, just because it happened before doesn't mean it's right. If Stephen Harper jumped off a bridge, <laughs> would you jump off a bridge? Maybe it's time to elect people who won't do the same shitty things that everyone else has always done. Well, and just quickly related to that is also the people saying, look at the Michael Cohen hearings that are happening. Look what's happening in the U.S. Come on, let's get some perspective. Like, that, no. No. Because we're, if we accept this and if we don't get to the bottom of this and expose what happened and have some political accountability, then we are no better than that. And we are going down that path. Let's nip it in the bud now before you know our institutions have fallen apart to the point where all kinds of madness is happening around us. Well, and let's not remember that part of the whole Trump sort of impeachment hearings, all of that stuff, is Trump was putting pressure on his AG to drop an investigation. And also, let's not forget how Trump got elected. Drain the swamp. All these cozy relationships between lobbyists and, you know, elected officials and big corporate interests. Like, if if Canadians start to feel that companies like SNC-Lavalin are pulling the shots and that there's one set of rules, you know, for big, rich corporations and another set of rules for the rest of us, that is fertile ground for populism, right-wing populism, and um, Trump-like... Um, influence. So You're right. I, and it's these institutions that are designed to protect us from all of that. And when we have a party who said they would do things differently, who are then, you know, quite probably eroding some of these institutions that are protection against people like Trump, it's so damaging. And that just reminds me of one last thing, which is, uh, I don't think we mentioned this last week, but Andrew Shearer had an ad out that just oh, made me laugh great. so much because it's in response to this whole thing. And it opens with the line, Justin Trudeau said he was going to be different. Now, New Democrats have been saying that a lot. Justin Trudeau did say he would be different. Who would be different from? Different from who? Like, 
Justin Trudeau said he would be different. Different than you? Like, oh my god, that just made me laugh so much. That is so, so ridiculous. All right. This has been a long one. Yeah, but I think we're done for now. But, of course, we'll be back after Jerry Butts and others testify, I'm sure. All right, guys. Um, Two a week. Two a week. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, hope you're not getting sick of this, because we're sure not. And I'll just put another plug in. We had a lively chat on Discord tonight with lots of people listening. And look, this is just a selfish thing. I steal other ideas and don't give them credit. So um, check out the show notes, click on the link, sign up for Discord, and um, come and uh, chat with us while we podcast. Thanks for listening. See ya. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at M. Spratt. Thanks for listening.